Hi, my name is Casey Converse. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? This is the word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Chris, and the New Testament reading is found in Romans 7, 21 and through 8, 8, 2. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is forever no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Abby. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in John 8, 12 to 14. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from or where I am going. The gospel of the Lord. Please stay standing as we pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that it is living and active and sharper than two-edged sword. And we just pray right now that you would come and you would continue to speak. As your presence has been with us in worship, as your presence is here in the, the proclamation of your word and the creed, we ask, would you soften our hearts? Would you till the soil of our souls to receive the seed of your word, that your spirit would water it and that it would grow and bear fruit, to testify to your kingdom come, to glorify you on this earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, it, is, it is good to be back. My name is Evan. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. I had the, the privilege and honor of last week being in Manitou Springs with our Manitou Springs congregation, um, which was a, a real treat because usually we're here, so we don't often get to see uh, and visit the other congregations. And, and if you're like me, you grew up in this area, and what you knew about Manitou uh, was pretty much limited to coffin races and witches and warlocks, right? Like, I, that, was, that was my upbringing. That's what I knew. Um, and it turns out there's a, a wicked good penny arcade. There's the pinnacle of fitness called the Incline. Uh, and there's the people of God worshiping in that city. So it, it's a, it's a, it, was a, it was an honor to be there. Joe Kirkendall and his team, um, they're doing it. They are gathering 80 to 100 believers every week to exalt and praise and worship and teach the gospel within Manitou Springs. So uh, I'm back this week. Glenn is teaching at New Life North. Uh, I am teaching here. And Pastor Jason is uh, holding down the rest of the fort here. And 
And we are continuing our series uh, through Lent, looking towards Easter, and we're calling it, Who Do You Say I Am? And this is uh, Jesus asking his disciples at a certain point in the Gospels, um, you know, there's all the rumors flying around, but who do you say I am? And their, their response, Peter's response especially, is you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so we're looking at these I am statements throughout the book of John, and thematically, John, uh, he is repetitive in his themes. So if he starts a theme in, in chapter one, he's going to hit it over and over again through his whole book. So we, we start thinking cohesively about what these statements really mean, and they're markers, uh, markers of the revelation of who Jesus is throughout the entirety of the book of John. And, and John is a, it's a, categorically, it's a narrative, so read it like a story. Don't think chapter 8, verse 4. Think in John, somewhere in the middle, around what we would say chapter 8, verse 4, there's some part of the story that's going on, and we're trying to figure it out. Uh, and so as we're, as we're reading it this way, we see a couple of themes start appearing, and one of them is the I am statements, and going, why does he keep on saying I am, I am? And Glenn hit it last week in opening up that the I am statements of, of John is, is Jesus declaring and proclaiming his equality with the God of the Old Testament, it is Jesus proclaiming his equality, that him and me, the one that you worship, you Jews, and myself who is before you, we are one and the same. And he's saying I am, and he, he's taking that nod from, from the narrative in Exodus, uh, the second book in our scriptures, where, where Moses, when he's being asked to, by God at the burning bush to go back and to tell Pharaoh this and to tell the, the Israelites this, he goes, so who should I say sent me? What's your, give me? Give me a name. Give me something, God. Who sent me? And God's response is, the I am sent you. The I am. And it becomes this phrase uh, or word in, in Hebrew, we say Yahweh, and it's the self-revelation of God. I am the I am, and that's the one who's sending you. I am, I am me. And, and uh, the word Yahweh is then the personal name of God that the Israelites use uh, within their, their faith and their practice for the rest of uh, the scriptures in the Old Testament. If you want to know where we're, we're really seeing that name going, I haven't, I haven't seen Yahweh in my Bible. Um, if you ever see in the Old Testament a capital L, a capital O, a capital R, a capital D, so Lord, all uppercase, it is the translators of our scriptures in English giving us a note towards this is what's actually being said. This is God, this is Lord, but it is the relational God revealed, it is Yahweh that's being translated in that word. And so when you start paying attention, there is a Lord uh, word where it's, uh, it's lowercase all the time, and then there is Lord, all uppercase, Yahweh being revealed. And that's, that's some of what John is doing. He's making a case for this Jesus being God. And we, we parachute into chapter 8, and we're looking today at the I am statement of, I am the light of the world. Uh, and we, we contextually, we need to know what's going on within the, the scriptures as a whole, and especially within the book of John, because they're writing a story. And if we don't know what's come before and where we're at in the context, we might totally miss it. Um, I have a story of my own that highlights this dramatically well. So... <laughs> Freshman year, I, I was in Bible school. I was a sophomore freshman. Uh, we were back in uh, Portland, Oregon. I went to a school called Multnomah. And um, the, the, there was a freshman class there. And um, I was 20. Do you guys remember being 20? It, it, yeah. <laughs> it's the age for my wife that she says, if I met you, then I would have never have married you. And I go, well, that's, 
Deal. Uh, that's fair. So I was 20. So keep that in mind when I'm telling this. And uh, there's, I don't, I don't even really know what was going on, but there's some guys watching a movie uh, in the dorm rooms. And a little backstory for me, it was at the same time that year that a very, very close friend of mine was going through some really, really hard stuff. Um, her, her dad had called all of his kids one by one and told them that he had been having an affair and was staying with this woman and was divorcing their mom. And I was walking with her uh, through th this whole season. And so that, that was fresh. Everything to do with that, I was going to school, I was trying to make friends, and then that was going on. And I was walking with her uh, in, in the depths of that valley. And uh, I walk in on these freshmen watching a movie in the dorm rooms. And they happen to be watching a movie called Family Man with Nicolas Cage. Anybody? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're like, oh, it's a good movie, Nicolas Cage. <laughs> Uh, so, so Family Man, and I had never seen this movie. I honestly had never really, I had no context for what the movie was about. And I happened to walk into this dorm room in the middle of a movie, and what happens to be going on was this alternative life that he could have lived in the, in the movie, and he had a, a wife and kids, and it was great. And the, movie, the movie's really awesome. It really is. It, it highlights family values, and it highlights you know, faithfulness and being, being content and, and finding joy and uh, what we have, and, and it's, 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 the values are fantastic. In this scene, however, I walked in, and he is kind of contemplating planning on cheating on his wife with some other woman in the, in the movie. Um, the poor souls in that room, I tell you, they, everything was so fresh in me because of what was going on in real life that I walk into this situation in the movie, and I lost it, and they... They had received it, and I, <laughs> I, 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 I saw it was, it was one of those, I mean, it's annoying enough when you walk into a movie, or at the middle of a movie that friends are watching, and then you're the person who's like, hey, what's going on? Oh, what's happening? Oh, who's this character? Why is that important? And you're just like, shut it, man, we're trying to watch a movie. Well, I walked in the middle of it, and I didn't give them any of that courtesy. I just went, I can't believe you! Are you entertained by adultery? How dare you think this is fun? Oh, and I, I just unloaded on these poor, innocent, sweet freshmen. And, and then I just left. I, I just walked out. Uh, I was telling this story to my wife, and, and she, she acted very similarly, and then she went, well, did you go and apologize? And I said, I didn't even know who it was. I, no, I, I have no idea who these guys were. And I, they were just watching this movie, and I got super upset, and I left. And, and I, I, I want to use that as, as an example of just saying, it is so important for us to know what's going on in the story. Because if we don't know what's going on, uh, we can miss the whole thing. We can miss the meaning of what's being presented. If we don't know what's going on, we can fail to, to understand the importance of, of what's being said. Just like Jesus saying, I am. If we were just to read that, you're going, I am the light of the world. Great. But I am is him equating himself with God. The person of God, as revealed in the Old Testament, as the I am, when Jesus is saying these things, we need the context and the history and, the, and what is happening and why 
why is that so, so pivotal in the story? And, and we need the same thing, too, for whatever statement comes next. So last week was Glenn talking about, I am the bread of life. This week we're talking about, I am the light of the world. Well, light isn't just something that John plops in there and goes, ah, that's a pretty good theme. I'm the light of the world. Now, he starts it, he starts it, and it's a theme throughout his whole book. It's hard to actually find a chapter where John's not talking about light or darkness in some way. And he's picking up this theme of talking about light is good and it's God and darkness is evil uh, and, it's, and it's night or whatever. And, and sometimes even the themes of when they go out or when the daytime is happening or the skies get darkened or it was night or something. He's setting a tone for the scene and the story so that you get this feeling of is it the goodness and the glory and the presence of God or is something else maybe more heinous happening and it's darkness. And, and, and so he starts this whole discussion of light not just in, in chapter 8 um, when he's talking and I am the light of the world, but he starts it actually in the very first chapter in the very first paragraph. So um, we're, we're going to land in John 8, but turn with me if you have your Bibles to John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. All these things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that, that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so in our story, in what Jesus is saying, I'm the light of the world, we, we have to recognize it's a theme through the whole book of John. And he starts it at one, and he equates, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was the light, and it was the life of men. And he, the darkness has not overcome it. So he starts, he just, he tees it up for us in the very beginning. Now, if you're reading this and you recognize, not only is John teeing up a theme in his whole book, he is actually carrying forth a theme from the entirety of the Old Testament. The Hebrew, the Hebrew literature, uh, the, the imagery of, of light is steeped throughout the entire thing. And it starts in Genesis 1. So not only going to the beginning of John to see light, we're going to the beginning of the whole Bible to see light. Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep darkness. There you go. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And what we see here is the writer of Genesis teeing up a theme even in his own book. So if you're thinking about these authors of the scriptures, whether it's John or as we take it, Moses who's writing Genesis, we, we see themes that they're writing through. They're not just writing historical, crusty old accounts of, okay, this happened, okay, then that happened, okay, then that happened. They're, 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 they're looking at the story in hindsight, and then crafting a narrative that shows themes. And so the theme of light showing up in Genesis 1 is both, let's say, yes, historically true, but also thematically significant. And what, what he's doing in Genesis 1 is he's setting up a, an idea of the presence of God as manifest by light from the very beginning, and a presence of God that brings order out of chaos. 
The presence of God, manifest by light, starts bringing order out of chaos. And when you start unpacking that, it's because Genesis, the first three days of creation are just pure creation. Light from darkness, heavens and earth, uh, sea from land, uh, and he starts just kind of forming it. And then he starts filling it, day four through six, and and, and ordering it. And the, the creation story is a story of bringing order out of the chaos that it started with is formless and void and the darkness hovering over the deep. And his response to the chaos, the formlessness, the voidness, the darkness, the very first thing he does to address that is he creates light. It's not until day four in creation in Genesis 1 that he creates the sun and the moon. Without the sun and the moon, he creates light. This person, this presence of God manifest on earth, starting to tease out order and, and, and form, and he's bringing, and he's speaking into the chaos that was, and he's starting to order it and write it and bring life about. And he starts with the creation of light. And so this theme, when John plops in, and he says, I am the light of the world, he's not just, it is significant enough if he was just to say, I am. And leave it right there. That's Moses. That's the burning bush. What's my name? It's Yahweh. But also, he is pairing with each one of these weeks, each one of these themes, something largely significant that we need to understand that that's where we are in the story. I am the light of the world. The very person and presence, the very creation of starting to order and bring life out of creation that was formless and void started with the idea of light. And that's where it all begins. And so Jesus saying, I am the light is huge. So if you have your Bibles, John 8 and John 9. This is pretty cool. If you have your Bibles on your phone, you can't see it as well. You can look at my Bible right up here. Um, <laughs> John 8 and 9, like I said, the chapters, verses, all those numbers, they separate stuff. They, those, those come far, far later. In a narrative story, don't break it up so easily because in the beginning of chapter 8 and in the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus declares about himself, I am the light of the world. So it happens here and here in my Bible. Wherever it is in yours, highlight it. It's important because what John is doing by saying it twice is he's in the story bringing up two parallel stories. One is about his, his proclamation, I am the light of the world, to the Pharisees and their response. The second one, starting in John 9, is his proclamation to this blind man who is a beggar and his response to the whole thing and what happens there. So if you're looking at John chapter 8, one of, what, if, what he does is basically he, he's in the temple, he's, uh, he's preaching to the Pharisees, and again Jesus spoke to them, verse 12, I am the light of the world, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Huge, huge theme. And what do the Pharisees do? Basically put him on trial. Prove it. What are you saying? You're testifying about yourself. Where's the witness? One witness about yourself that isn't true. Give me a second witness. Your father? Great. Where's he at? You don't know, you don't know where I'm coming from and where he's at? Oh. And, and where's the... You're, you're, ah. And they start using all this language of judging and witness and testimony, and they're basically putting them on trial, saying, you're, you're making this claim about yourself, and we're resisting it. And, and, and it ticks them off to the point that Jesus is just saying, like, basically, guys, if you didn't know this, light is fairly self-evident, right? Like, prove there's light. Well, open your eyes. It's, it's right there. And in the self-evidence of it, he's saying, I, I don't have to. I, I bear witness about it because it's self-evident of who I am in the way that I'm living. And the second part of it is, if you need a second one, it's, it's God the Father, and he'll testify about me. But you don't know where he is either because you're blind in your own self-righteousness, Pharisees. And they get really ticked off at him. And what they end up doing is, uh, well, they, they pick up stones and try to kill him. And so he slips out, as Jesus does. And as he's slipping out, 
he runs into this blind man who's a beggar on the side of the road. And again, he says, I am the light of the world. And it's in response to his disciples asking, who sinned, this man or his parents? Because in the, in the, in the historical context of Judaism at this point, sin was largely uh, correlated to, or a physical ailment was correlated to sin. If you were sick, if there was something going on, there must be sin or, or, or evil of some kind. So who was it? And Jesus refocuses their attention. Okay, I'm the light, I'm the light. And he says, it was not this man, nor was it his parents, but this is so that God might be glorified, that you might see the glory of God. The very person of God, you might see it here. And, and Jesus is, is constantly doing that. If you want to say the glory phrase, it's connected, even historically, again, going back to the Old Testament, the presence of God, the glory of God, the light of God, they're always in the same thing. When he meets Moses on Mount Sinai, the glory radiates, he comes down, his face is shining and the temple, when it fills the spirit, it's the, it's the presence of God, it's the light of God with the Ark of the Covenant and the, and the, and the holy place. It's, it's, it's this constant theme of glory, God, life. And he's saying, this is so that God can be seen. It's not about sin right now. This is so that the person of God can be known amongst you, that the light would shine and that glory would come to who he is. And he spits, he makes some mud, wipes it on the guy's eyes, all right? tells him to go to the pool, he washes, he receives his sight. And the juxtaposition of a story in which the Pharisees say that they see and yet are blind to the light right in front of them and a blind beggar who can't see but receives the power of God and, and, and the person of God and obeys that, it, it's startling. John is writing this so intentionally to show the, the differences of these two responses to light and God's revelation of Jesus as the light of the world. And, and so he washes, and then he goes into the temple, and the Pharisees do the same thing with him. They put him on trial pretty much. Like, this can't be the same guy. This, this, this guy who's seeing in front of us right now can't be the same beggar that we've all known. So they go to try to find friends, and they eventually take him to the Pharisees, and then they go and get his parents. So Jesus, who's the second in your testimony? Oh, it's your father, but we don't know where he is. Okay, well, this guy we do. Go get his parents. And so they bring the parents down, and the parents are all like, man... That's all grown up. He can talk about it himself. If he was the blind guy, he's the blind guy, okay? And, and, and they just shift it back and saying, like, let him bear witness about what has happened. And it's his testimony that they refute. And I, I love, if you look through chapter 9, some of what the, uh, the disciples end up railing against is the fact that, for instance, he, uh, he heals on the Sabbath day. Like, if that's the worst thing we can do, then we're doing pretty good, right? So, it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made mud and opened his eyes. That's verse 4 of 9 and 16. Some of the fairies said, this man is not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. Jesus, how dare you not keep the Sabbath and heal on it, right? Jeez Louise. And then 34, they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they do the same thing to him that they did to Jesus. They kick him out of the temple. And these two parallel stories, and it's at the end of that that Jesus finds him again and testifies again that the light has come in and he believes and confesses his faith in Jesus. The light of the world has come. It is the person of Jesus. I am. It's Jesus paralleling himself with the God of the Old Testament. The light of the world. It's Jesus saying the very essence of chaos and disorder and formlessness that started in the darkness of creation, I started ordering and bringing life to from the onset of creating light. And this light will show us how to live then. Because it's not just it's the person and presence of Jesus. It also shines. It's this thing that, that in, in Psalm 119 your word is a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path because it is self-evident in itself, but then it also shows us the way to live. 
In the Old Testament, light was also a theme, not just of the person and presence of and glory of God, but also of the wisdom, wisdom of God being revealed as light, and that's, it's, it's the imagery that it's used. Because not only is it you, God, but then you showing me how to live. How then shall I live? And, and, and this is the point where the rubber starts hitting the road. Because if God is light, and he sends his son, and Jesus is God, and then Jesus shows us how to live, and the Pharisees can't take it, and they cast him out and try to kill him, and they don't believe the blind man, and they cast him out, then we have a serious problem with light. And I want to just talk a couple things about what is our response when the light comes into the world and comes into our lives, right? And I want to do this in this way. I want you to be vulnerable at the very least with yourself, okay? I'm not going to ask, what did, you, what did you come up with in this moment? I'm not going to make you turn to your neighbor and tell them. But I want us to start thinking about our own lives and the light and the darkness in our own selves. That God is light and he's revealed it. He's the light that heals the blindness and that, and that beggar so that he can see and then shows us how to live. But there are parts of our lives that we keep in the darkness away from God, away from the presence of God, away from the instruction of God, which is his wisdom, which leads to life. We keep it, we keep it away. And we, we some, for some reason, maintain areas of darkness in our life. And I, wanna, I want you to, to think about your just self-inventory right now. How do we respond to the light? And I think a lot of times we freak out about it. But I want to talk, I want you to think of this. What are the possible things in your life that are the darkness that we keep inside. First potential is sin, unconfessed sin. I think that's a pretty easy one. If God is good and God is light and, and Jesus is righteous and he is the light, then any sin that we have is darkness and we keep it at bay. So that's a potential. So just what is going on that you keep in here and do not let out? Other potentials of what we keep in the darkness. Depression. Shame, mental health issues, grief, sadness, weakness, failure, pain, loneliness. Let the list go on. There's parts of our life that we, it, it, it might be the sin, it might be we know how we're supposed to live, the way that leads to life. You've revealed it, oh God. And then there's these parts that we go, this isn't necessarily sin maybe, but there's no way that I'm letting any light shine on this. I'm, I'm barely confessing to you, God, and I sure as heck ain't gonna tell all these other people, right? <laughs> and, and all of those things, I just wanna say, are very, very real. I, I, sometimes culturally, if, if it is sadness or grief for you, Grief, it's, it's the loss of something. It could be the loss of a loved one or a friend. It could be the loss of a job and the identity that goes with that. And you're just grieving and, you're, and there's sadness involved in that. But unfortunately, what happens in culture is that you're supposed to be okay, right? How are you, brother? Better than I deserve. But not always is that true. So what do we do? And we're, we're, we're told a script that you should be okay, but you're not. Maybe sadness, that's not just well, this thing happened and I was sad, but then tomorrow I should be okay, right? Like, 
brothers and sisters, we need to let those, those are okay feelings. God feels sadness. Allowing ourselves to do that and not being shamed by them. Letting ourselves into these darker feelings of going, but I'm not okay, but everybody says I should be okay, so is it okay that I'm not okay? Yeah. We're not, not all okay. It's okay. Other things like shame. It's not that you sinned, but something happened and there was embarrassment maybe. Except the twisted lie that starts happening is it wasn't what happened and just that, oh yeah, that was embarrassing. It's you are a mistake or you are a failure. Not just that I did fail and, and, and uh, man, bummer about that, but you are a failure. And this identity piece starts shaming you so that you never share it with anybody. Sometimes it's, it's pieces of the story like weakness. You're supposed to be strong, right? We're Americans. Hoo-ah. I can do it myself. So what happens at all of those moments when I can't? When I can't do it on my own? When I'm, when I'm not okay and I can't because I'm weak and I'm broken? And I want you in yourself, this list, and there's more words to use too, but what is the darkness that you do not bring into the light with God and as he has put us into community with somebody that you trust? Don't go airing your news to everybody, but who can you trust with it? And why do we keep it in the darkness? And I want to suggest three reasons. When those things come up, those words, the darkness in our lives, what are, what are, how do we respond to that? If God is light and he is good and his way leads to life and yet we have darkness and we have shortcomings and weakness and sorrow and pain and what do we do with that? Why does it not come out? And I, uh, number one, a potential reason for this is that John 3.19 and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. There's far too many of us that delight in the darkness rather than the light because we can get away with whatever it is and it's hidden and there's no, there's no judging, there's no shaming. It's just I'm going to do it and it's dark and I know, but I like it more. And in that case, we continually need to ask the mercy of God to change our appetites. Lord, let me love you more than I love evil. Let me love light more than I love darkness. Help me shift my appetite for you. Number one, we stay in the darkness because we like it too much. Number two, we build a protective wall of self-righteousness. This is a huge one, guys. I think this is huge, especially because as, as the Pharisees, they're set up as the religious experts, and sometimes us as believers in Jesus, we set ourselves up as like, the, well, I know the way to live. Except what we start doing is we emphasize the things that we're good at or that we got under control while de-emphasizing the things that we're pretty bad at, and we build these walls of self-righteousness that let us judge the person across the table from us rather than all of us understanding that we're all under grace and we're all under forgiveness of God, right? If one has sinned in one point of the law, he's sinned in all points. But the Pharisees in this situation, in this story, I think why Jesus sets them up is because they refuse the light, but because they're keeping the Sabbath. How could you possibly testify about yourself and heal on the Sabbath? You sinner. You are holding the keeping of the Sabbath above the mercy and healing of God. And there is the way that God is coming and Jesus is coming and he's showing this is the way to live. This is the way to live. And he's showing us this revelation of stop it with your self-righteousness. That you think this part is better than that part. That you have your list of rules and that's why this is better to live this way than others. Let us start, all of us, coming under grace and mercy and knowing that we're all sinners and we're in the hands of a very merciful God. 
The last thing, potential, if it's not the fact that we love darkness, if it's not the fact that we build this protective wall of self-righteousness so that we could prop ourselves up, I'm better than you, it's the fear of being exposed. We stay in the darkness because we are freaked out about what's going to happen if it comes into the light. Whether it's my shame, whether it's my weakness, whether it's my grief and my sorrow and I'm not okay, I have a mental health issue and I don't know what to do with it, but I keep it hidden instead of letting it start and letting the light of God shine on it and letting, letting the life of God start ordering and bringing healing. And, and it's, it's this fear of being exposed. And this is the lie that we've been taught is that your exposure will lead to condemnation. If you let them see it, if you let whoever it is, this trustworthy friend, a spouse, uh, uh, whoever it is in your life, if you let them see it, the response will be condemnation. And if that's the truth, I would say, shoot, keep it inside. But the response of God is radically different. Psalm 27.1, it was our Old Testament reading. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? My light and my salvation. John 3.16, we love that one, right? God so loved the world, gave his only begotten son. John 3.17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Not for condemnation did Jesus come, but for salvation. I am the light. I'm coming. I'm showing you. I'm shining. I am the person, the presence of God with you. And guess what? My judgment is not condemnation. It is salvation. That is the whole reason why I'm here. Hopefully this starts unraveling some of our fears. Romans, it was our New Testament reading. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has come into the world to shine the light, to, to manifest the person and presence of God and the way to live that leads to life, that starts ordering our chaos, that starts bringing darkness into light and freedom and salvation with that, and yet we still freeze. And I want to have a very serious conversation about this right now. I think it's because a lot of times as Christians, we don't act like Jesus in that situation. My wife and I, I want you to imagine this with me, we have these things called confession sessions, and it's a, it's a fun time because it rhymes, first off, um, <laughs> and it's basically our attempt to live in the light with one another. I want to bear my, we're married, so that's kind of the goal, right? Like nakedness before one another in, in, in our persons, and our souls, right? So I want to bear myself before you, and so we'll just kind of call it sometimes, like, babe, I, we need to have a confession session. And sometimes it's sin. I mean, there's something that's gone on and we just need to say, hey, this happened, or I was a jerk, or I'm sorry to you for this, and I just need to repent, and I just, we need a confession session. And sometimes it's like, I confess I finished the entire bag of chips. <laughs> okay, you're bearing your soul before them. <laughs> but how, how do we get past that moment if you, I want you to think of this darkness that you've been keeping and somebody that you could trust it with, somebody that you really know you could trust it with. The moment of saying, babe, we need to have a confession session. I, and you know that feeling when you're trying to be vulnerable and it gets stuck right there? I just, it's a fear of what the response is gonna be. 
And we're learning as a congregation. This is why we do confession every week. We're learning. Lord, I'm about to confess to you. And guess what your response is? Love. Your response, mercy. Your response, grace. Your response, kindness, gentleness. Your response to me enables, empowers me to bring darkness into light and know that, that, that the judgment is not condemnation, it's salvation in Jesus Christ. That is your response to me. And as Christians, as we are called to be and reflect the light of God to this world, I think sometimes it's, what I'm about to tell you, what are you going to think about this? Should I tell you? Will you think less of me? Will, it, will you think less of my honor? Will you think less of my person that I'm struggling? Beloved, we are all broken. We are and learning the rhythms of grace of Jesus Christ at this table every week, I pray, helps us learn how to respond to one another, that we could be people of the light who live in the light according to the ways of the light, and the life of God would be installed within that. Because one of the things we need to be able to do is, is for the person who is bringing their darkness into the light and confessing and, and saying, I am broken, I am a sinner, I am blind, I need to see, I am not okay, I hurt I am weak, I am whatever I am, whatever it is you're about to bring in the light. Know that because of this person on the other side, us, let it be true of me, O oh Lord. Because of the way that we've received that from God, we can return it back tenfold and say, let me respond to your brokenness, to your darkness in the light with mercy, with life. I love you. I care for you. I don't think less of you. There's no, no, there's no shame. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But the, what there is is freedom, living, and the light, and the person of God, and the community of God that he's given us. And we are called, we are called, beloved, to be such a people who are freed. And at this table, we rehearse it. At this table, we, 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 we receive it from God, and I just, I want to charge us. Let's keep, let's keep on trying to get more of that in us that we could respond that way to one another. Because when I come to my wife and say, babe, I'm really struggling with insecurities this week. And I don't know. I, I'm believing these lies and these shames and I'm learning. We're, we're, still, we're seven years in, but we're still getting better at this. That her response to me, I, could, I can be more bold and confident in saying that because the response to me is going to be, babe, I love you. I'm here with you. Let's walk through this together. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This God is the light. He is, he is the person. Jesus is the person and the presence of God, the wisdom of God who shows us the way of God manifest to us and he welcomes us in to his grace, his mercies, his forgiveness, his, his way that we could be freed in him and that Jesus, the light of the world, we would find in him the light of life and truly, truly understand life in this world. Let's pray.